Every day, amazing humans are connecting with their power as individuals to change the lives of others, to create opportunities, to fight injustice, to care for the planet. It's my mission to raise these amazing humans up and in harnessing the power of their stories, bring energy, passion, inspiration to your day, to connect you with your unique abilities to impact the world. Every time you click play on this show, you will be inspired, empowered, and reminded that with every decision, you have the ability to touch lives and leave a positive legacy. Thank you for joining us as we share stories from across the world. Thank you for believing that you can make a difference. This is Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. Hello and welcome to episode two of Impact Stories with Nick Kershaw. We had a short pause as I was deep in the depths of a master's assignment. For those of you that don't know, after five years of running Impact Marathon's organisation, I took time during lockdown to go back to school and began a master's in international development. It's been the most awesome journey so far putting those years of experience out in the field, working with organizations around the world back into academic study. And, and every single day, I have to say, every single day has driven a plethora of new ideas. And by the use of the word plethora, clearly I'm still in a bit of an academic writing mindset as I speak today. Um, the assignment itself actually was inspired by a recent podcast uh, recording that I did, and I can't wait to share that. We're going to share that next week um, with a few extra thoughts thrown in based on the research that I, I've undertaken since that conversation. It really inspired a lot of uh, where I wanted to take that study. And, and uh, yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. So tune in next week. And that leads us on very well to today's guest, Rachel Lindy, who gained her master's in international development from SOAS University in London. Um, we first met when I prepared a report for her organisation, Five Talents, whilst I was in Uganda preparing for the, the first international marathon that I that I set up. As a keen runner herself, Rachel approached me about a year or so later and asked, how can we use the Impact Marathon platform to bring new fundraising and, and storytelling to Five Talents? From that conversation, the Kenya Impact Marathon was born and continues to this day. Um, we'll, we'll, we touched on that a couple of times uh, in, in our reminiscences throughout the interview. Now, Five Talents is a microfinance organization. So it's harnessing the power of microfinance, small groups, saving funds collectively, then loaning those funds out to support the business growth within their community. And it works across Tanzania, Kenya, Congo, Burundi, South Sudan, Myanmar and Bolivia with 100,000 members of their savings groups worldwide. Now, what I love about them is, in particular, the way that they've devolved the power in the organisation to the local partners um, and the local teams that are actually out there delivering the projects um, in each of the communities. I love the passion of the local staff who I've obviously had the pleasure of working with personally um, over the years. And I'm super impressed by their considered approach to philanthropy, eschewing the, the traditional charity narratives um, in favour of, of a long-term systemic approach. As with last week, this was recorded in October, so bear that in mind with some of, <laughs> some of our anecdotes. Uh, but apart from that, enjoy. Rachel, we've been working together on and off through this this period uh, since twenty. I think we first met in twenty fourteen. Yeah, we did, didn't we? You went to Uganda. Yes, yes, yeah. I was in Uganda, and and uh, well, is it Neil, the chairman of of Five yes. Talents, wanted me to do a little bit of work on uh, at the project there, and I remember meeting you in London Bridge. Yeah, Cafe Nero at London Bridge Station. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you trying to tell me everything you knew about Five Talents in about forty-five minutes, um, which I guess is where I guess we can start today. Is a bit about how did you journey from from where you grew up to the point where you're now CEO of Five Talents um, and and working extensively across 
East Africa and not just Kenya, but um, I guess a bit more about your story. Yeah, well, I, I always wanted to do something like this. I'm one of the lucky people who's ended up doing something they absolutely love, uh, but it took a while to get into it as... Oh no. Uh, so I started off working for a community-based project, part of the Church of England, giving grants for community projects uh, in the UK. So churches who were employing youth workers or putting in disabled toilets. I used to get sent a lot of pictures of toilets because that's what the grant money had been spent on. Um, and that's a theme that continues through running and <laughs> travelling. Um, but I did that for about four years and then felt I wanted to do international community work, not UK-based. So I quit my job. I went and spent six months volunteering with a tiny NGO in Kenya called Maji, Missouri, which in fact we took the runners to go and see. Yes. Uh, yeah. That is the place where I realised this is really what I want to do. Uh, and it's where I first came across microfinance as well. So the charity had lots of different projects. It's one of these charities that sets up, the, the, the founder has an idea, sets up something and runs with it. Mm. And it's grown enormously. Uh, so she began with a microfinance project because she was a social worker uh, working at the University of Nairobi. She sent students on placements to Mathari Valley, uh, one of the slums that we visited, and they all refused to go back again. So she went into the into the uh, the informal settlements to figure out why no one would come back. Uh, talking to some women, went back the next week, and none of them were there. And she figured out they'd been arrested because they were working as prostitutes. That's the only way they had to feed their children. So she went to the police station, paid bail for them, took them back to their homes. And one of them said to her, yeah, thank you for doing that. Um, but the first thing I have to do now is find a man to sleep with so that I can put food on the table for tonight. So after that, she gradually quit being a university lecturer and set up a microfinance project so that these women could earn a living through a, a much more productive way. So the first group uh, bought some some mugs, some tea leaves, some milk. One of them lent a charcoal cooker and they started selling tea to earn a living for themselves. And as the projects grew, she realised that those those uh, the children of those mothers were being left on their own, which isn't very safe. You know, there's fires, there's sadly all sorts of things that go on. So she started a little nursery project for them, which became the school that you visited. Mm -hmm. uh, so the project grew and grew, but that is where I first saw microfinance and I thought, wow, this is incredible. I want to do this. So came back to the UK, did a master's, did three or four other jobs because it takes a long while to get anywhere and then ended up with five talents. And so in in the simplest terms, which is never too easy in the, in the world of development, um, what what is microfinance and what is it about microfinance that you find so inspiring? I could talk to you for hours about this. <laughs> we'll save that for next time. We're on a long bus ride together. Um, but basically, the, the original concept of microfinance was Mohammed Yunus founding the Grameen Bank, all about making small loans to people. So rather than giving handouts all the time, lend some money to someone, they can invest it in a business, they can repay the loan. Uh, and they've earned their own living, so it's sustainable. Um, Five Talents has moved on from that, as indeed much of the sector has. So rather than making loans ourselves now, we form savings groups. So the community comes together, people in the village come together, they form their own community savings group. They elect their own leaders, they save their own money, and it's their own money that they're lending to one another. They make all their own decisions about who takes the loans. They set the interest rates. They make excellent credit decisions because it's their money. When there's a crisis like coronavirus, they then have savings to draw on. So people have been drawing on their emergency savings. Uh, but one of the biggest benefits of the groups that we see that they often mention is not the access to money. Um, mm. you know, if, if you imagine you're a, a woman with four children, no way to feed them, husband's disappeared, living in a rural area, no work opportunities. What do you need? You need access to some capital so you can start your own business. You need access to some skills. So we do an awful lot of training as well, money management training, business skills training. But also the third thing you really need is to a support network, to some friends, to bounce ideas off, to friends to help you out, and people to talk to when your first and second and third businesses don't, don't, don't come good, um, people to support you when crises happen because they do all the time. So one of the greatest strengths of these savings groups is the, the solidarity they form, the fact that people have friends to rely on. And when you've saved your money with someone, you trust them. So mm. in our programme in South Sudan, uh, we've introduced some trauma healing counselling because people have experienced you know, hideous things in the conflicts there. And what we found is that trauma is a blocker. You, you, can't, you can't start a business if you've experienced trauma because you're just not in the right place. Equally, when you join a savings group and you start planning for the future, that in itself is a healing act. Because if you're saving, you're planning for tomorrow, you believe in tomorrow. Mm. Um, because you're talking about money, 
you find you can talk about other things as well. You can talk about domestic violence. You can talk about what you experienced in the war. Uh, so there's all sorts of tangential benefits. When you talk about microfinance, you think about banks and you think, well, that's not great. Mm. But actually, the really exciting stuff is about people you know, being able to fill their own potential, really. Um, and and how, how do you go about, so, you know, you, you've set up a project in, in South Sudan and then it starts out with the, with the, the savings process. That's going along. There's financial training, there's skill training, and then you get information like people people aren't able to to put their businesses together because of because of the trauma that they've experienced. What what happens next? How do you then go about changing or tweaking that program? So because we work, we always work through local partners. We in the UK office, there's five of us. We sit around a table in one room normally, not right now. We're all at home now, but normally we sit around one table in one room. We don't deliver any of the programmes ourselves. We deliver through our local partners who are all from the communities that we're working in. They're always connected with the Anglican Church because there's a church in every village that you could go to. Obviously, they're open to people of all faiths and none. But it's those local leaders that are the key because they know the communities and they know the needs. So the community will say, um, this is what we need. And then we'll try and find a way to, to walk with that. And is that often the case of you needing to find the the, the funding to, to finance that? Uh, what, what role do you then play at that point? So not always, honestly, because the whole the whole ethos of the savings groups is that people can you do things themselves. Um, mm. It's very tempting to rush in with a quick fix. You know, you see a need. This community has no well. Let's build them a well. Uh, no, let's not, because maybe there's one that's going to be built by the government a mile away, or maybe they've already had three wells and they've got polluted and they know that it's, it's not going to work for them and they need a borehole instead um, so it's easy for us to want to go and fix something um, but what we've learned is that the thing to do is to facilitate discussions in the community so the community sits down and says what are our problems what's causing them what are the solutions and what can we do about it we being the group themselves so then the group would say you know we don't have any clean water what are we going to do about it and then they would identify what's right for them to provide, mm. um, and our role is really just facilitating those conversations, and then helping them to realise that they can save, um, they can invest, they can use their skills. They've already got a huge amount of solidarity, um, so just helping them, you know, equipping them to, to solve their own problems. That's fascinating. I hadn't actually thought about it from that perspective of, of we often have this this challenge within impact of of do we work with organisations that are looking at that long term systemic change that sort of is the prevention rather than cure. Um, but when we're seeing a major challenge right here, what do we then do? Do we just focus on that preventative thing where we might not see results for some time or do we do we go in and say, okay, cool, these people, you know, this this community doesn't have this, we will provide that. Um, how, how do you, like, how does that look behind the scenes of Five Talents and, and thoughts on it from, from obviously, you know, Impact Marathon, what are your thoughts on it from our perspective? And I, one of the things I love about Impact is the way that you are all about the local community. And, you know, it's inevitable when we're all going to visit a community from the West and North, whatever you call it, we're bust in for a week. There is inevitably some sense of us and them, um, but you go to huge lengths to try and eliminate that as far as possible to make it all about us, to make it about the, the common the common elements of humanity we have, whether that's running or the projects or whatever it is. Um, and that's, yeah, I think that's one reason that five talents and impact get on so well, because that's the five talents as well, that you know, we are all the same. Um, some of us born in lots happier circumstances than others, but we are all the same. Uh, what you do when you see, it's honestly, it's so hard. I don't have the mm. end. When I go to community and I hear that there's female genital mutilation happening, yeah, I want to stop it straight away. I want to stand up and say, what are you doing? That's completely wrong. Stop it. Mm. Um, but that's not going to change anything. And, and I know it's not going to change anything. So what we would do instead is we would uh, yeah, start these community conversations where the community starts talking about what's, what's, what's the barriers in our community? What are the things we want to tackle? And eventually we've had members of our groups go on to become you know, female MPs, for example, or they've gone on to petition the elders to say, we don't want FGM here. So mm. Change does happen, but it's slow, and that's really hard because you know, we're all human. We want to, we want to make things better for other people, and I don't know what the right balance is, honestly, between standing back and waiting or just diving in and trying to do something. 
Yeah. And I think, I think there's this element of, of, you know, progress isn't linear and we're seeing that we've seen that since, you know, so much throughout our lifetimes, but particularly now, I guess it's, it's not a linear time. Um, 2020 has been anything but, and, you know, I think, you know, there's always when you're, when you're in any career you take, you see the different challenges that's facing your industry or your sector um, within microfinance, within five talents. How do you see the changes in the challenges you had before, what the challenges are like presently during this period, but then also looking forward, what do you see as the, I guess the long tail of, um, of the challenges faced now? And uh, yeah, I guess we'll start with the challenges. I, I, I will want to move on to optimism always, but I guess like, what are the challenges and the transition of challenges through through this 2020? You know, as, a, as a UK charity, we have been very fortunate that our income has held up. You, you know, charities hmm. are all about fundraising because if we're not fundraising, then we've got no projects. Um, and many charities have been really hard hit. We feel very fortunate that we haven't. Um, our income has held up and that's because we don't rely massive events we don't rely on charity shops we don't rely on government funding we rely on a lot of individuals who are, have been and still are very generous and um, so we've managed to keep on supporting all of our projects and the projects themselves again one of the great things about the model is that it's completely flexible because the model is basically building community groups and then those community groups decide what's right for them so some of the groups stopped meeting altogether obviously where there were lockdowns uh, they had to and you'll know many of the lockdowns were very strictly enforced with people being arrested and beaten up if they broke them uh, so some of the groups did have to stop meeting and that was really hard because again if you're not going out to work every day generally you're not eating at night so you know, there were massive economic impacts for, for the communities. Others of them found ways to keep meeting. So, for example, they would say, well, there's 20 of us. Let's get ourselves into groups of three. One person will take the money to the treasurer. One person will collect all the paperwork and dish it out. So they, you know, they found ways to adapt. Let's meet outdoors. Let's sit at two meter intervals with face masks. Let's get into soap making um, and let's give that soap to other people in the village who can't afford to buy it. And so the groups themselves, you know, they've got everything they need to respond to these kind of crises. Not that it, you know, it was hard. Of course, it was hard. And it was really hard for us sitting here in the UK saying, how do we get the balance right between advising our trainers to stop visiting groups? Because we don't want our trainers to be super spreaders. Um, but also we know the groups are needed more than ever because people need their emergency savings right now. You know, they need loans to kickstart their businesses. People are going to be going hungry if they can't go to the market to sell their sell their goods for the day. So again, really, really hard to get the balance right. But our approach is always you know, ask them what they think is right, and that probably. Mm. Is. And Ed, have you seen? Um, this is sort of a guess off the wall question, but we've seen obviously in 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 our own communities certain businesses and ideas have have really. This has been a great moment. I mean, Zoom, for instance, which we're, we're meeting on now. Um, have you seen uh, beneficiaries who've had businesses that actually this was a quite a, a good time for them? Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So the ones you would expect, you know, soap making, mask make, mask making, all those kind of things, of course, have been popular. But also market goods, uh, because markets mm. always had to close uh, because they are essential places. So people who have got market stores have been all right. Um, I think um, the other thing is though that we've really noticed has been awareness. So the very remoteness that normally we always work in remote villages where there aren't any banks and there aren't any formal employment opportunities. Um, and that remoteness normally is a barrier because you've got no access to market opportunities. But right now it's been a protection because there's been no coronavirus. But what we found is that that means people haven't heard of coronavirus uh, if you don't have a television, you can't read and write. You don't have a radio. Nobody comes, nobody goes. You know, people don't know about it. And then when the lockdowns began to ease and people from the urban areas were going back to the villages, again, we were very worried about a, a second wave as people from the urban areas brought it back. So we did a lot of health awareness training. We didn't. Our partners did a lot of health awareness training, teaming up with doctors and um, health workers just to share all the messages that we all know about washing your hands, keeping your distance, all that kind of thing. Um, so I think the education side has been really important as well as the the business side. And I guess coming as we've, you've been speaking, it's been in my mind that uh, most of the coverage in the media that we've seen uh, around this has been very uh, inward looking. We've heard all about what's happening in the UK and the NHS and, and that's yeah. great. And I'm sure every country from everyone who's tuning in has had the same experience. You walk, uh, remind me the countries that five talents works across. And I guess also just 
uh, yeah, the, w- where things are right now across the board, and then we'll we'll probably move on from from too much on coronavirus. From the topic of 2020, uh, yeah. Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, DR Congo, Burundi, South Sudan, and then Myanmar and Bolivia, which are slight geographical outliers. Um, Bolivia has been really hard hit, um, as much of Latin America has. Things are still really bad there. Um, but our, our trainers there, they've started just doing training through WhatsApp messages. Most people have WhatsApp there. So they've started doing business skills training in, in WhatsApp chunk size messages. Also, just loads of loads of encouragement and support. You know, you're not on your own. We'll get through mm. this, that kind of message, um, which I think has been helpful for the trainers as well as for the community. The picture across Eastern Africa, as you know, is is you know, it's massively varied within each country, let alone between the countries. Tanzania, there's not much data coming out of. They had elections this week. There's been quite a lot of political repression, and Tanzania stopped reporting to the World Health Organization. Just declared the president declared coronavirus is over. Let's have a party. So it's been quite hard to know what's really happening there. Um, that means I've been able to keep meeting because there've been very few restrictions, but we've asked them to put in place some sensible restrictions. Um, and what that's been really valuable is because we're a church project, and it, it might surprise UK listeners to hear this, but the church is really, really trusted um, in many of the places where we work. So the communities have, have trusted the health advice that our partners have been giving because they're seen as connected with the church. So they've actually taken it on board rather than listening to the president's advice, which is, not catch coronavirus, um, let's have a party. Um, so that's, you know, that's been strangely encouraging um burundi also had elections in may which went peacefully but there wasn't much data coming out around the time of the elections because no one wants to be voted for when there's a coronavirus crisis it feels a bit ironic that on the third of november when america is <laughs> um south sudan put in place a fairly strict curfew most of the spreading there was happening through ngos uh, DR Congo, uh, we work in northeast DR Congo. There were lots of cases in Kinshasa where we worked, there were very few. And I think because they'd grappled with Ebola, they found it in some ways much easier than us to adapt to this kind of situation. Even uh, you, the most humble, modern thatch home you can imagine still has a hand washing point. You know, they have a jerry can with some soap on string, one of those tippy tap things or something. Mm. So you know, washing your hands is just second nature there. Um, and they also had really, really good contact tracing, um, again, without wishing to draw any parallels with our own systems. Uh, but there was one case that came in to DR Congo across the border from Uganda. Uh, they found the guy. They tried to chuck him out because they didn't want him. Um, anyway, they did take him to hospital. But then they traced every single person he'd been in contact with. They isolated for 14 days. They had no testing equipment, but they had a really good isolating and, and tracing system. Um, and they've not had any more cases. So Wow. As you were saying, there's been so much coverage of, of our culture and the coverage there has been uh, for, let's say, DR Congo is generally uh, these people won't cope because they're poor and they don't have the health systems that we have, which is, it's true. Of course, the number of intensive care beds is practically zero, but the the coping strategies they have from the experience they've had of other crises is way ahead of ours. Mm. Um, I must share it with you. There's a really fascinating article about you. We should all be doing a lot more learning um, from the places that we tend to look down on as being less developed than us, um, which, yeah, I'm sure you've done a lot of reading on the whole Black to Charity Say White movement as well. I'm digressing now, but there's so much we should be learning from our partner countries rather than assuming we know the answers. Absolutely. I think that's also just part of the journey that you go on as a... Um as a foreign organization working, working abroad, um, that experience of having an idea or a conception going in and realizing how wrong you were, um, that humbling experience. Um, but then I think also there's a challenge in there that I've found, which is then how do you then communicate that to whether it's the impact runners or your donors or the public at large without uh, sort of sounding in some way preaching or that communication yeah. of, of okay, this mm-hmm. is, I, I thought the same, but I went and then I realized that this was totally wrong yeah. when especially that was the case in this community, but the community is so, so different. Yeah. I, I don't know how you guys, and I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about a little bit was um, 
within that, we've seen this week Comic Relief come out and say that they're no longer going to, to send celebrities over mm-hmm. and they're going to use more local mm-hmm. storytellers, which is something that, uh, well, both of organizations work with uh, Adam Dickings and taking pictures, changing yeah. lives and what he's doing with his local photographers. How do you look at storytelling as a as a foreign entity telling stories of different countries um what are the main misconceptions that you find and then how do you communicate and take people on that journey yeah i mean it's really hard we've always resisted poverty porn as they call it you know Mm. imagery has always been thanks to adam incredibly um positive because our ethos is all about everybody everybody can do this you know people are not poor uh, they're just born in crappy situations um, and all they need is an opportunity to to use their skills to use their talents god-given talents if you're religious talents if you're not but to use their talents um, all they need is an opportunity to unlock that and um, so our imagery has always been very positive but yeah we've been doing a lot of reading recently on white saviour syndrome white gaze and we're guilty of it too of course we are we can't you know, we can't not be um we're we're trying hard to be better but we need to we need to look at ourselves and look at our content gathering approaches and how we present people are we putting words in people's mouths are people really telling their own stories are we perpetuating some of this west knows best stereotype um, and it, it's a it's a long colonial story really you know it goes a long way back so yeah we've got we've got a long way to go but at least it's in the national conscious now at least people have heard of what white savior complex is mm. And I think, how have you found that as a, as a foreign CEO, how have you, and, and especially one from Britain working in, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to kind of focus on Kenya here just because that's, that's our, our kind of, I guess our common place. Um, how do you find that as a foreign CEO, as a British CEO with the colonial history, is there things that you've come up against where there's, uh, where there's still, uh, potential upset about that or mm-hmm. and I guess mm-hmm. as well into that is as well as your role as a as a female CEO mm-hmm. um, and how you found conceptions around that in in Kenya um, and also I guess in Britain to some degree mm. yeah no it's true it's true there are plenty of gatherings I go to in the city of London where I am uh, in a minority being female uh, and being I can't say under 40 anymore but under 50 <laughs> Um, in Kenya one of my colleagues has this saying uh, foreigners are forgiven and she's so right as you know the Kenya culture is so unbelievably gracious that even when people are a Kenyan person will be very aware of colonial history and and will have suffered from it probably you know their forebears will have suffered from some of the things that British forces did Um, equally they'll have benefited from some of them I'm not saying it's a black and white issue at all but generally our partners are so unbelievably gracious that they don't hold it over us. Um, and I don't know how not. You know, I think if my grandparents had been in a concentration camp in Kenya, I would struggle to welcome people into my village. Um, and if people rocked up in my village with more money in their pocket for a day than I earn in six months, again, I would struggle to share my meal with them and welcome them with singing and dancing. But as you know, that's what happens. People are incredibly, incredibly gracious. Mm. Um, but I ways that's a, that's a disservice. I think we all ought to be having more honest conversations and I haven't found a way to do it. Even, even after how long have I been with five talents, eight years or so. So some of my colleagues in Kenya, we know each other really well. They stay in my house. I stay in their house. Um, yeah. We've spent a lot of time together. Even then, I don't think, we have had that many honest conversations about how I, as Rachel, have screwed up because I will have done. You know, the time mm. things wrong, they generally won't tell me. Um, and the times that you, Britain, for example, has screwed up vis-a-vis Kenya um, historically. So I, I would love us to have more honest conversations about that. And how, I mean, there's, there's something that I want to kind of build off onto in terms of our shared experience in the first year, but how do you think you can go about starting that conversation? I mean, it's so hard because even starting it is us saying, right, we are now ready to talk about this or, or whatever. And, and, and as we said, we never wanted, there's this goal of trying to create an us and, and a natural mm-hmm. thing. How would, how do you feel about starting that? You know, is that something that can be instigated from five talents? I think it's, it's, as you say, it's about creating the us and it's something that you guys do really, really well because you take a group of people who 
already have a shared passion for running and already have a shared sense of adventure and and those kind of people are generally willing to try and build relationships you know they're willing to try and meet the communities and, and genuinely engage with them but I yeah it's really hard to do in a week isn't it it's really hard to do I think it's about people being open-minded um mm. and as you know once you've been on one of these trips generally your mind is blown wide open and that's got mm. to be a good thing that's got to be a good thing mine is still blown wide open and I must have been not this year but usually I'm going three or four times a year um mm. time I learn something new and I come back with a, a greater sense of yeah mind openedness um, and that's got to be a good place to start I think uh, but what do you think I'm doing all the talking you tell me what you think I mean I mean it, for me there was this this time and I think you know when we think back to the first race that we did in Kenya um we were in a, a place in Kenya that we we never really expected the 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 election had happened in July, August time. Um, and there's been a presidential election. I'd lived in Nairobi during that time and, um, watching the news, uh, listening, learning. And I think as well, much, as much as anything, sitting and having a whiskey with someone and genuinely just chatting about that stuff. And I feel like those late night conversations that I had, um, were some of the most, most interesting. Uh, and, and, and certainly there was an openness and a discussion and you learn more. And I certainly learned more around, um, you know, that concept that we're looking upon at an election in Kenya and we're worried about violence and we're worried about, um, it being fair and free. Um, and then you put it in the context that the democracy is only 50 years old. Um, and I don't think I'd ever really thought about it from that perspective at all in terms of this is a 50 year old concept that was an imposition, um, in, in many, many, if not always. Um, and so as, as they, trans- as, as Kenya transitioned, there was democracy was the only option to to run the country and so um if you look back at the early days of a british democracy uh we had you know we had exactly the same challenges we had civil wars we had debate we had these things and um and i think that that when i think back to that first year in terms of how much did i learn and those conversations around britain's past in kenya came up over those whiskies in the evening they came up and it was really just uh, yeah, the biggest learning few months of my life, both in terms of impact and also in terms of, um, my own concepts around that past and that history, uh, and coming to terms with it, which is something that, yeah, if I, if I talk to that older generation, the generation that lived through the war in my family, they would certainly be saying about the positives that, that, that we, you know, was left behind. And, it's it, that alone is a, is, is a is a big question mark over over whether that is but it was more around just understanding that the, we stand on those shoulders and um our interactions therein with every race has been far more considered in terms of how much we want to take a step back and just say this is not our story to tell anymore and i think that first year trying to tell the story of the kenyan election from my point of view all i could do was relay the facts of what we knew rather than it did it felt very difficult to to then allay the underlying 50 60 100 200 so, year history that yeah. led up to this moment yeah um how i mean how was it for you during that that period to just just to just to put the final picture of that was the the election happened in august 6 weeks or so after the election the supreme court nullified the result set a date for a re-election that then actually got pushed back one week, which meant the election day landed on our race day in October, months afterwards. And we were left sort of uh, freestyling behind the scenes to keep the keep it all working. And, it, you know, it, it turned out that to be a remarkable, the, the, the changes we had to make because of the election actually turned out to be what made the race and, and the second year made the race uh, so much uh, better than I guess we'd imagined. Um, but that did mean that behind the scenes, Rachel and I were constantly kind of tweaking and changing and, and all the way through the run-up and yeah I guess that question of what what was learned through that and what what was that like from your perspective uh in the because because five talents tell the story of the week uh, a lot more than impact do in that scenario yeah well I mean you you thrive on a crisis Nick don't you so you were the one who was doing all the running around and fixing everything <laughs> Um, and we were very glad to have you there doing that. But in terms of the experience for the runners, I mean, 
hats off to them for coming. I mean, I always say it's an enormous privilege to travel. I, I feel so fortunate I've travelled so much because you learn so much. And back to what we were saying earlier, you set off thinking, I'm going to go and change the world. Um, and actually, every trip you make, you realise that you're changed and you've taken from it. What have you given? That's probably more questionable. Um, so it's a huge privilege. That said, it's also pretty pretty adventurous um, of people and very generous of people to give a week of their annual leave, a week of their holiday money and to travel somewhere where they're not going to be having a luxury five-star holiday um, and they are going to be contending with potential political unrest, violence, cancellations, evacuations, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Um, and again, that brings you into the realm of, well, we could get evacuated and the local communities can't and that's a whole other moral um but I, I think you it makes it a whole lot more memorable and I, I think it's just real isn't it this kind of mm. crisis unrest you we've had an email from our partner in northern Uganda just this week saying uh, one of the groups had to cancel its meeting because there was cattle raiding people came with guns everyone had to go home and make sure their cattle were safe and then they didn't want to come back because there were people around with guns now that's pretty traumatic if that happened in my village where I'm staying right now it would be of every newspaper in the UK um, but for them it's not really news it happens all the time um, just to open our eyes to the fact that what seems to us like a, a massive crisis is normal life for many many people and they have to get on and live through that because that's what they do and yeah they can't evacuate after a week or a day or whatever and, and yeah go home to their five-star homes yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was definitely the case, you know, leading up to the election that year, everyone was like, oh, no, we'll, we'll be heading out for election period. We never stay in Kenya for election period. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I didn't have any other option. And but it was it was it was a really such a fascinating time to live through uh, an election. Um, and I get I me, mean, I guess that brings us a little bit onto the impact marathon itself. You've now, I mean, we wouldn't be in like literally was no, I didn't have Kenya as a place necessarily on the list that, that we were going to, to put a race in. Um, but, but you sort of driven it from day one and, uh, made it happen in those, those first years. And what was it that, because you're an incredible runner let's talk a little bit about your running journey and what running means in your life um you've done ultras you've done all sorts um yeah what is running to you why did you get into it how did what does running mean to you I have always run and I feel again so incredibly fortunate that I have running as part of my life because it gives you so much it just gives you so much feeling good sense of perspective, chance to meet other wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. It is something that crosses boundaries as well. Uh, we've both spent time with Ben Rottich, for example. Um, obviously, he's far better than either of us could ever, ever, ever be, but we have something in common. Uh, so, yeah, running is its a huge part of my life, and I love the chance to talk about it. It's one reason this marathon is so perfect for me, because I love Five Talents, I love Kenya, I love running. So I get to, you know, do all three, and I get to introduce other people to all of them. It's such a such a privilege. Um, you mean we've seen all sorts of people come and run that route i get what is it that route's a sort of a quirky one because we we as we said because the election we never meant to be uh having it where we did in chesimotia state um how do you find the course i love it and it's rare of me to say that because i hate laps i'm not a lap you're the crazy people who do 24 hours of one mile loops or whatever no 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 i like a to b where you feel like you've got somewhere um so when you first told me it was going to be four laps i wasn't very enthusiastic but it's so beautiful it's just so beautiful and every time you come up to that top point and see out over the rift valley yeah just so beautiful i learned something the other day about the rift valley that it's still moving apart I didn't realise that. Yeah, so that millions of years in the future, that Rift Valley will, in fact, probably be an actual rift as well. Which, anyway, I mean, that's that's not something we need to worry about in this this in our lifetimes for sure. But um, I mean, that course because yeah, I always try and and, and make it less laps. We've we've had the four laps from from year one because we had to make that that work yeah. and it was a safe place and it worked and they already had an eleven k route and I've always I tried it before to try and make it two and you end up sort of it doesn't quite have that same mm-hmm. energy as everyone on yeah. every distance being out there and I think because we have the elites who come and use it as a training day almost 
that there's something about that. So you'll, you'll, you'll get that experience all around the course. Yeah. I wouldn't change it now. Um, really? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't. Cause I, it's, as you say, it's lovely to be able to see people so many times as well. The walkers, the runners, the 10 K, the half people. You managed to speak to everybody last year, didn't you? I, th- I tried. I think I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's so lovely. So lovely. It's just nice to share the experience with people. And I find it so inspirational when people are doing their first marathon as well. You think you pick this as your first marathon, you great mm. person. So the chance to share a bit of that with them is very cool. Well, I remember it was Kit Garnett in year two who, <laughs> yes. and so if, if year one was defined by the word election, year two was defined by the word hailstorm. Hailstorm, because in, yep. <laughs> in the middle of the race day, um, I mean, it must be in five minutes. Was it five minutes where it went from blue sky to gray sky Something to like that. hail sky? Oh, yeah. And, and there we were, and we sort of, we were, we were making the changes and, and Kit was outside running around the hut to finish off his marathon because he's like, yeah. I came here to run a marathon. I just thought yeah. <laughs> yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's it. There's so many different reasons why people are out there running. And I feel that on every, every race I ever do, let alone impact yeah. marathons, um, yeah. you just get so inspired by the different reasons why people run. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that I've noticed through the amount of people that are joining Strava suggests to me that casual running is really on like, on the up through through lockdown and at the moment obviously UK mm. is back in is what well, I was about to enter is back in that period. Mm. Um just seeing that running uh is is touching more lives actually through this period yeah. is, is yeah. I think I hope so. It's been one of my saving graces through lockdown. I'm sure it has mm. as well. Just yeah with my running club doing distance events or uh, virtual events just running on my own or running with another person when we've been allowed to it's makes a massive difference to mental health, I think, as well as physical health. And we've, we've seen, because we're obviously involved in, in running clubs in lots of different countries, uh, in yeah. Kathmandu in particular, where it was uh, not allowed out of your house, you had to get a permit just to leave yeah. the house. They're, every weekend they were coming up with a Saturday challenge. And that was, you know, one time someone did Everest in 24 hours up and down the steps in his house. Um, but even so, even if it was just the kids going back and forward in their lanes outside that, all of these things. And it was just, it was great. It was a privilege to sort of be part of that. Yeah. Um, even though yeah, in the UK, we were allowed to, to go out and I'm, I'm here in Pembrokeshire National Park. So I couldn't, I couldn't have a better sort of trail running spot, but, um, you know, I did those runs inside the house and inside the garden, uh, with, with the different running groups that were involved in, um, it's definitely been something that, has, has really inspired me throughout this period is seeing people coming up with the different challenges and yeah, challenging us yeah. to look forward as to what we want impact events to be in the future as well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what it can be. What, what are you thinking about that? Well, you know, I, I, we, we had the virtual event back in, in April where we did our Notteram, which was brilliant. We had sunrise shots from all over the world. It was such an amazing, cool. yeah, amazing time um but we never wanted to do too much around virtual events um because i think a lot of events organizations focused in on that and we felt like that wasn't because the run isn't what makes an impact week so special we didn't want to sort of try and recreate it just through running challenges so we focused a bit more on taking a step back and looking at what impact can be in the future and um and around we've got i think we've talked about it sort of alluded to it a number of times, we've got this model whereby um, international runners join us in a country somewhere and we, 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 we run an amazing race and we have an incredible experience and we visit the projects and we learn lots. Um, and something that's always bugged me is that this, the model is reliant on, on international participation. And I think in the countries that we've worked in so far, over these five years, we've seen so much every year, the the number of local runners wanting to be involved in the projects, um, talented race directors who who want to, to who've got loads of ideas. And mm-hmm. we've also seen the standard and quality of the races in each country go up so high um, to the point where impact coming in for one month or two months. Actually, we can do so much more if we were with the, the by letting our, our our race directors out there become the leaders of the race and do it all year round and come up with new ideas and concepts uh, and also just getting more of the, uh, the, the local runners engaged in the community. Um, 
And that for me has been our, I guess, our exciting go looking forward to go, okay, cool. That we can we can look at this from a completely different angle. That model yeah. we had is is still there. We're never going to change that. That's a fantastic part of what we do and, and I love it. But um there's actually there's almost like a, a missed opportunity over here to look at how we can get the low I've always wanted to, but never known how. And so this yeah. time off, so to speak, has given us opportunity to get okay, how can we have yeah. communities using these races to to drive their problems or their challenges yeah. or most importantly their solutions forward. Um, yeah. 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 I've often thought about it because you are, in some ways, you're a whole lot more than a travel company, but you are a travel company and 2020 has not been good for travel companies and increasing focus on environment has got to say something to travel companies. Um, yeah. A way to kind of marry that to the, um, yeah, the the shift the power movement, as they call it in the NGO sector, which is, as you're saying, all about shifting the power. It's not us in the West who should have the power. It's people in the communities who should have the power to solve their own solutions so taking the mm. running and the travel that you do to make it focused around the communities um, yeah i mean i think i when we set up impact the goal was never to be a travel organization it was yeah. to use running as a tool um yeah. so when you go back to that original mission uh the fact is is this has been a really incredible model but yeah. uh and and will as i said continue to be so but but there's just loads of different angles and there's so much more of a yeah. platform and working with adam um on the storytelling side of things and then we've used lots of amazing videographers in each country who are telling stories from a guatemalan perspective from a kenyan but yeah. and so it just feels like there's some yeah it feels like it's exactly the right time to transition that and conversations like we're having now is stuff that we've talked about behind closed doors for too long and actually i feel like more open conversations more telling of stories from from all the different perspectives is something that that i want us to do more of for sure um and that doesn't that doesn't involve getting on an airplane and traveling across the world um but it can do and it will do and uh, and you know, like there is something absolutely amazing about race day when you see all of the different countries and the cultures. I think we had over 20 different countries represented in Guatemala this year. And that's just, a, there's there's no, no energy like that. And I, I can't wait to be out there having an event yeah. again because yeah, for sure. it's exciting and fun. It really but, is. Um, yeah, it really is. Yeah. I mean, what are yours? I guess a question is like, what are your if you could pick out one moment from the Kenya impact marathon experiences, like what is your craziest moment and your favorite moment? Oh man. You can do it whichever order you need to do that. <laughs> They're probably the same actually, but no, I mean, my favorite moment of all of them is seeing people bond. I love it. You get a bus full of strangers who rock up jet lagged and knackered and not knowing each other's names on day one. And then by day three, uh, there's nothing they won't talk about with each other from what breakfast did to their stomachs <laughs> to what they believe about colonialism. You know, it, it's, yeah, I love it. It's, I think that's my favourite thing, seeing, seeing strangers bond to become friends. Um, yeah, I mean, I can't agree with you anymore on that. That that's that's what makes it so addictive. That buzz of the, in that first night, everyone nervous chatting and the small talk and all of this. And by the end of the week, blimey, there is there's nothing. And then you see them different people meeting up uh, around the world, and it's just really cool to see that 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 started from a from a, a bit of small talk on a bus in Kenya. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and crazy people experiencing their first um, visit to somewhere like the places that we work as well. Mm. Always mind blowing for me. Right? I think you and I have been many, many times and I, I do mean it when I say I learn something new every time, but you do also get familiar um, and it's really grounding to see people experience it for the first time. And you realize, I hope I'm never not shocked by this because I should be shocked by some of the things that we still see. Um, but the, the fact is that people come back inspired more than shocked. You know, the whole mm-hmm. game, this whole no poverty porn thing, when you speak to people who've had their first ever trip to a community where people don't have enough to eat, right? they are humbled and sad, but they're also they've got something positive to do with it. They're not they're not seeing themselves as the person taking photographs to put on Facebook with their arms around children. Um, yeah 
able to do more than that. They genuinely want to try and understand, you know, why why is this happening? So many questions that we get asked and we don't have all the answers. But the fact that you know, people want to ask the questions, um, I think is great. And do you find that there, there's a there's a more engaged conversation at that point than, than if you were to tell someone about the project? Um, what do you feel like the difference is when someone's actually gone and visited a five talents project to, to when they've been told about it? I, there's no substitute is there for seeing mm. it running if you describe a race to someone it's not the same as them doing it themselves it's the same I can as you know I can talk to I'm blue in the face about our work um, <laughs> you know end of stories about women who's incredibly changed by the projects um, but that's completely different from you actually talking to someone and hearing it from mm. themselves and you know, looking around and smelling and seeing and just being there like just experiencing it there's something about experiencing it Mm. And I guess it's the people are outside of their worlds now and it's the time for them to actually pause and, and ask those questions. Whereas when we talk about it from, you know, and it's in the middle of a meeting day or whatever, you're then back into the world, your kids are screaming yeah. and you've got to do all this and actually taking yeah. people out. Um, yeah. I think, I think, yeah, it creates a space where people can embrace. And I guess a final question for you is, what's what what gives you optimism right now i think it's a really you know obviously we've got even if we took out covid from this this current present situation as you said earlier we are talking about this on the 3rd of november it is election day um i guess we can record two endings if we need to but um i I, i'm always seeking to to find what makes you optimistic about um, the future of development the future of of humanity even at this stage i think it's not unfair Mm -hmm. for us to ask that question I'm an incredibly optimistic person. Um, I am optimistic because people are essentially good um, people all over the world. And we've seen the best, of, we have seen the best of people in this period. You know, there's a few people who are buying a food toilet roll that they can find, but there's a whole lot more people who are donating to food banks and calling their neighbours and getting to know people for the first time. I think the sense of community that we often envy when we're in a village in Kenya, we have learnt a bit of the value of here. I mean, every day of my work, I meet good people because yeah, mm. I have so many supporters. I can't tell you how wonderful it is when the post arrives in the morning at our office and you open it and there's a cheque for £500 from someone, you know, someone who sat down and written a cheque to contribute to the work. It's it's just incredibly humbling to be someone who can connect that, that woman who's written me a £500 cheque and a woman in a village in DR Congo who's learned to read for the time and is now setting up a business and sending her children to school. Um, and the world is full of good people like that. Mm. Um, I am optimistic. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat through your story, uh, a little bit about him, impact story as well within there. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Rachel. No, thank you, Nick. It's yeah, it was an exciting adventure all those years ago. And we're going to do it again. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Hey, it's Nick here. Just a quick message before you go. If you have been inspired by today, if you've learned new things, then please leave a comment, leave a review, share it with your friends. It helps us to inspire and empower more people today. If you want to reach out, just message me on Instagram at njkershaw. And until next time, go out there and be awesome.